0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Unpacking Neuroqueerness. Today I have another guest, Ayelet Shrek. Um, and uh, We're going to talk a little bit about their experiences as a neuroqueer, disabled individual, and a little bit about the intersectionality in between those identities. So welcome on, Ayelet.
1: Hi, thank you for having me
0: course thank you for joining Excited us to yeah <laughs> everyone's always a little bit nervous when when they join but i think you'll find that you know once we get going i mean i was anyways i i yeah it's yeah, just a conversation, right? yeah, it's just a conversation. Yeah. i always tell people too that i had to like my first episode i recorded four different takes right. and i i only published it like 12 days later with like a different name so um <laughs> Anyways, yeah, uh, so I have a few questions for you today. Uh, my first question is, how soon in your life did you realize that you were different, and um, how did it affect you early on?
1: Yeah, so I figured out that I was different. Uh, when I was 10 years old, um, I developed trichotillomania, um, which is compulsive hair pulling. Um, and like, that was a huge shift for me in my life. Um, I went through like a little existential crisis, um, where I was like, oh my God, this like thing is happening and I don't understand what it is and I like can't control it. Um, and up to that point in my life, I was like really a a kid. Right. Um, and then I like, like, that was the beginning of, of my like maturity. Right. And, um, And it made me feel very different and very isolated, um, but also created this, like, way of connecting to people, um, because I would, like, Mm. share this vulnerability with, with, you know, the people I trusted, um, and, like, they would share their vulnerability with me, and um, it also kind of, like, really, like, like hyper-stimulated my empathy, because I was like, oh, if something is... I have something going on that, like, other people don't know about, they probably have things going on I don't know about. Mm. Um, yep. So it got me, like, really curious about other people, too. And, um, and yeah, and I, like, uh, you know, like, about three years, I think, after two, two or three years after, um, developing Trick, I, uh, ended up, like, coming out to my class about it, um, so that it didn't, like, have to be a secret mm-hmm. anymore, um. But I still, like, was, like, covering my head. And I, I did that, like, well into high school. So there was, like, definitely a sense of, oh, I'm, I'm different. Something in me is, like, not the same as it is for other mm-hmm. people. And um, and I also, I mean, I was also, like, developing, like, OCD and, and anxiety. But I didn't understand at the time, like, those things as much. Because, you know, Trick was so clear because it was a physical action, yeah. right? And I could I could measure that. But, um but I didn't necessarily have a sense of everything else at the time. Um, but I did always feel different. Again, and I never really wanted to be the same as other people. I always felt um, like I wanted to be different, and then I wanted to connect to other people who were also different.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I can, I feel like I can relate to a lot of that. in ter- And it was interesting that you mentioned uh, the hair pulling, um, mm-hmm. because I feel like I used to do that sometimes as well um and and I think it was probably sort of a stim for me um (laughs) but I just didn't realize it at the time and of course no one else was thinking of that they were all I mean it just shows how there's always like from early life and school and everything and I think still uh, a lot of, in school situations, there's so much emphasis on, on the behavior and just the behavior. Yep. And it's, like, not the why is the child doing that. Like, why, yep. is, you know, um, it's just... Yeah. yeah. I, I really agree. Like, my parents, like, sent me to therapy, um,
1: which could have been good, but it wasn't because it was, like, very much focused on behavior, right? It was yeah. like, how do we get... I yell it to stop pulling, right? And it was like, that's not... That's about... It doesn't matter, of hair, whatever, yeah. right? Like, it was, you know, yeah, there wasn't a deeper explanation of, like, why this was happening, because I also think it was a form of stimming, and still is, right? Yeah. I still, I still pull my hair out. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, I also, like, didn't, because I didn't understand that's what it was, right? Like, I couldn't also, like, I mean, I, yeah, I did develop more control over it as I got older, right? Um, but... I yeah, it's a really complex relationship to this thing that, you know, it is a compulsion for me, right? Um, and that I've sort of worked to um, to take away the shame for for myself, right? Like, that's been like a big battle, is, like, taking away that shame. And it's also a very common behavior. Like, I think something like uh, I think I'm trying to remember what the statistic was. It's been so long now. Um, but I feel like it was, like, maybe, like, one out of 50 people has tricked or something, it's, like, not uncommon, but, like, it's
0: not necessarily talked about. Yeah, Yeah. I think exactly, like, definitely, it's not not talked about, um, enough, and I think in similar ways, how autism and ADHD aren't talked about either, Mm -hmm. um, it just leads to very stigmatized perceptions for most people of what it's supposed to be you're supposed to look like because all they're seeing is like what they see in movies and stuff and then that's a whole nother issue like how underrepresented neurodivergent actors are and it's like yep. they just like it's so crazy to me like still to this day like someone wants to make a show... I mean, now it's slowly starting to change, but, like, just a couple of years ago, even, like, someone would, would go make a show about an autistic character, and I don't right. know if they would even think to, like, cast an autistic... I wonder if they were even auditioning yeah. autistic people, because... Right. um And then it's just damaging, because it's, like, not only is the representation going to be poor, but it's, like, you're... Um, you're not... Uh you get um oh my god, I just had like a ADHD blank <laughs> moment. Um you uh oh my god, okay, I totally blanked. Um I
1: mean I I can share my thought on, on what you're saying, yeah, which is that mm-hmm. right, like the if you're not casting people whose identities like like if they're if it's hard for people with autism to find work Mm -hmm. right in in the in the theater or film world right and then like you have a few roles that are actually like autistic roles and then those actors don't get those roles right like there's a huge imbalance there exactly um, of opportunity so yeah yeah and
0: i just remembered it also perpetuates the idea that autistic people can't be actors or whatnot right Exactly. That's the other really damaging, um, stereotype or stigma that ends up, you know, coming up because you don't see, um, an, you know, autistic actors playing, um, playing autistic characters. Uh, right. Yeah, so, um, just, um, thinking also, like, because we were talking about the hair pulling and, like, how we would, um, you know, be kind of conditioned to, like, feel ashamed of it. I have this thing that I do also with my chin. And um, I'll, like, be rubbing my chin a lot. And I think I would tend to do it, like, um, especially when I would get really excited about something. Um, So I guess it was kind of like a hyperactivity stim, but it's also, like, um, you know, just, like, I think, uh, yeah, one of my preferred ways of of stimming. And it's just crazy to think back now at like how little understanding there was uh, around that as well. Um, Right. But anyways, my next question uh, is, what ways have you found to use being neurodistinct to your advantage?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a lot of things that... Yeah, being, being neuroqueer has, like, really, I mean, yeah, right, like, it's, every brain has its, uh, you know, sort of brilliance and its struggle, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my brain um, moves really, really, really fast and is really good at making connections. So, you know, I, I'm a creative person and I'm, you know, able to... Uh, think really deeply about things and also I can't fall asleep at night, you know, mm. like it's, um, it's it's a mixed
0: bag in that sense, right?
1: Yeah. But I you know, a lot of the ways that my brain um, like hold, my brain also holds like a lot of information at a time, right? Like I um, it can focus on a lot of different things at a time so, uh, you know, that can allow me to um, engage in really, really deep ways, um, and you know, like for theater, like I, I did theater my whole life, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and like that was always such a helpful skill for theater, right? Like, oh my God, being able to like focus on, um, you know, my my characters' roles, my lines, like the the, the movement, the yeah, you know, the clothing, the the other characters, the yeah. audience, the you know, the sound, whatever, mm. like all the different things um all the different elements and being able, able to hold all of that um and sort of act with all of that information yeah in my consciousness and and semi-consciousness mm-hmm. right like that is really helpful um yeah i mean i think that a lot of my you know I, I don't i'm not i'm not into false modesty so i will say like a lot of my brilliance right um mm-hmm comes from my neurodistinctness a lot of the things that I um, do well a lot of the things Mm -hmm. that I have to offer that like are you know unique to me um, are things that come from you know the very particular construction of my mind um, which I think is true for everyone right Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, yeah I certainly feel
0: that way about myself too yeah yeah Um, and it's just too bad that there's just not enough emphasis on the positive traits of neurodivergent neuroqueerness and autism and um you know like with autism like because it's just i don't know it's like there's so much focus on like the struggles which is valid like but it's like we just need support for the struggles but and we also need people to see that um we have like there's so many good things about it too because that's what brings me back to like you know i've done my had my i've read my fair share of like ableist articles from like these you know parent groups that i understand that really where it's coming from is that they're worried about their children but it's just they're looking about they're looking at it from a totally wrong like a non-helpful angle really um and it's, like, they're just vilifying, it's all about vilifying the autism and let's, mm-hmm. quote, fix or correct the autism or whatever. And it's just, it's so crazy that, like, you know, because there's this one woman, like, saying, like, oh, um, my daughter are now, are, and I are out. Some some are, like, doing autism acceptance, mm-hmm. some do autism awareness, we're doing autism action, because autism is very serious and nothing to be proud of. And I'm like, Jesus. So you're telling people to not be proud of themselves because they're autistic? Like, do you, I wonder if this woman even realizes or this person even realizes how um ableist they sound. Um and then anyways, yeah, it's just like
1: Yeah.
0: Cuz I get thinking too, like um why like these people put so much energy and effort and focus like into like vilifying the autism or autism action or whatever they were calling it. Um mm-hmm. But it's like why not just like go to the supermarket and like advocate for like sensory friendly hours or like Oh my god, I would love that.
1: <laughs> yeah That would be great. Let's do
0: that. Yeah, why don't we do that? That's what drives me crazy, It's like these people <laughs> You Like, they should be using all their effort and energy to actually advocate with schools, advocate with businesses right. and supermarkets. Like, let's make the world more accommodating. So I always... Yeah. Yeah, I always try to stress that whenever I get an opening on... on I don't know, like... Because... Like, I know... Because my regular lis- listeners will, like... They know I talk about this all the time. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I always... I talk about it whenever I get the chance because it's just to show, um, you know, that the real problem here is is the lack of, of how, you know, like, how society, yeah, doesn't properly accommodate. Um, anyways. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, I mean, I really agree with that. And my experience was so odd because I, you know, I didn't get any of these diagnoses, right? Um I mean, I still don't have these <laughs> psychoses, but, um, but when I was a kid and when I was growing up, right, I was really um, quote-unquote high-achieving, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I did really well in school, and I had all these, like, oh extracurriculars, yeah. like, the whole thing, right?
0: Um, yeah.
1: So, you know, I didn't... It. I actually was really celebrated, right? Like, actually, the way that my brain... Uh, did things was really celebrated um but not in a sense like not acknowledging the the neurodistinctness right mm-hmm. just sort of like
0: yeah or
1: my brain aligned with what was like
0: the standard of school yeah
1: um but then it was also like the struggle was all hidden right like mm-hmm. i remember um like years later um my mom that's a very complex relationship but um she said to me oh school is easy for you you know, that was all easy for you. And I was like, no, no, it was a struggle. It was such a struggle. Mm-hmm. And I did, like, really well in the, in the way that uh, was recognized, right? Like, it was, mm-hmm. it was um, validated as doing really well. But I was struggling so hard. Um, and all of that got sort of wiped away because I could fit this standard of success. Until I couldn't, right? And, yeah. and I, what what changed that for me was becoming, well, okay. My my physical disabilities started before my senior year of college, but uh, intensified enormously my senior year of college. And like that's when that shifted for me, right? And it wasn't until I couldn't fit fit and fulfill all of those societal standards. That that struggle really kind of came out and, and got acknowledged. Um, yeah. So yeah, so for me too, it was like you know if I if I can still achieve what what you know what society wants me to achieve, then I get this acceptance, right? Yeah. Um, but it was it was a it was not a it was a paved over acceptance, right? Um, and you know yeah, yeah it, it was very it was <laughs> very complex.
0: Yeah, I feel I feel the same way, like, mm-hmm. a lot of times I was, you know, like, because I did, you know, even though it was really hard and really stressful for me, mm-hmm. because I did so much masking and, like, you know, right. just, you know, powering through it, even though I, what I really needed, what my body would really would have needed was self-care and, like, right taking a break and stuff um but it's like also it's you know it shows like this culture this this kind of hustle culture that we're all which is very harmful um that we're all like kind of told that we need to like prioritize product productivity over like our own self-care and so because i did so much masking you know like you were saying you know we do so much masking and and it's just like we're so drained, but people don't see it because we're hiding it so well. And then we get called think like I would get called high functioning a lot. Like mm-hmm. when I go call out these ableist parent groups on, on the Internet, like I read this article and I was just appalled. And I, I went and I wrote a huge comment. The first thing the guy says is he calls me high functioning. And I'm like, you're making an assumption about my support needs based on like one conversation I've had with you on the internet. And it just shows how damaging like his view of autism is. Like he thinks that autistic people aren't supposed to be able to write messages on the internet. So I'm like, wow. Um,
1: And and also like, what is the standard of function? Yeah. Who gets to decide what is function and what is not
0: function? Yeah, what is function? I'd like to know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. please please elaborate. Yeah. Are there people who function in this world? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, no, it's frustrating because it's like they're not seeing all the the burnout like behind it, all the effort like just to like Yeah, just to like, you know, put on a neurotypical face or whatnot. Um right. Yeah. Uh So um I know you didn't uh have like a a diagnosis so may- maybe it wasn't uh, I don't know if you asked if you were able to ask for accommodations in school and at work at the time um but or in school I guess at the time um when you were younger but um did you were there anything because I know you have a few physical disabilities as well, so were there any? accommodations that you did ask for and how were those you know were the were they honored how how was the reaction
1: yeah so i was weirdly good at self-advocating in school um i don't know why exactly um i just kind of even though i didn't have a even though i didn't have like a sense of my own identity as like someone who was like neuroqueer i didn't have any of those terms right but i still knew that there were certain ways that like my brain did things that would like work better than others right so like so i actually did ask for a lot of accommodation um and uh and a lot of like like like, for example i my first year um in in my english class uh i was like you know i just like did not have i was not challenged in my first year english class and i was like really um, you know, it was like my subject, I wanted more of a challenge, and I got a group of my friends together, and we were like, we went to the, like, the principal, and we're like, can we form our own English class, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, like, they were like, no, and I was like, okay, can I TA for the English teacher, <laughs> and they were like, yes, um, so there were things like that, where it was like, this didn't exist, there was no, there were no TAs at my school, but I, like, you know, found a way to kind of advocate for myself to, like, oh. follow my mm-hmm. interests. Um, and there was, like, also, like, um, my, uh, my high school chemistry teacher um, who was a deeply kind human, like, such a lovely human being, um, but spoke like this, spoke like this, spoke like this. This mm-hmm. is how she spoke. Like, she spoke like this. This is how she spoke. And it was so sensorily overwhelming to mm. me. Um, that I couldn't learn in her class. Mm-hmm. Like, I had to, like, I, I didn't know that, I, like, again, didn't have the language for this at the time, but I was, like, tuning her out because I was so overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, and her her tests were really, really hard for me to understand. Um, like, the way they were written, I just, like, couldn't comprehend them. So I asked her, the first the first semester, like, our midterm, right, like, the test was brutal, like, for the entire class. Like, no one, like, <laughs> we were all struggling with it. So the second mm. semester i i asked her if i could do an oral exam like if she could ask me the questions and i could say them out loud and say the responses to her um and like you know and i ended up getting like more than 100 percent yeah um, and i think if i had like taken that test written i probably would have like failed it um so there are things like that where um you know I, I asked for things that i needed and uh and received certain kinds of accommodations or like or even you know actually in high school too we had this like community block where we you know gather as a school and like hear like lectures from visiting people and things like that um and i asked if i could do one and i could come out to my school about trick um about right. trick for me, about hair pulling um oh. and like no one had none of the students had done that before mm. right so there were things like that where, like, I don't know exactly why I had all this audacity in me.
0: <laughs> well, that's but, good. But I did. And, you know, so I did get certain kinds of
1: accommodations and, um, and certain kinds of, you know, like, ways of forging my own path, right? Yeah. Um, and then that continued in, you know, in, in college as well. And um, I also, like, always have to be doing something with my hands. Like, I'm currently like detangling yarn as we
0: yeah um
1: so i i would always like you know knit in class or like i mean what what the craft was would vary um but you know i did that in college too because uh, i'm you know i'm not someone who processes things like I, if i if i write something down my attention is on the writing so if i am hearing information yes. and i'm pausing to take
0: notes like Yes, I feel the same way.
1: I can't do it. I cannot
0: take notes. Oh my gosh, yes. So, I can't do it. If I'm taking
1: notes, that's all I'm doing. Like, I'm not processing information. I'm not contributing. Like, I can take, like, meeting minutes, right? Um, But, like, I cannot take notes.
0: Oh my gosh. I would
1: sit in class and knit and listen, right? And gain information that way. So, yeah, there are a lot of things, right, like that where, Mm -hmm. where... I knew I needed different things and I was always able to ask for them, yeah. but there were also things that I didn't know how to ask for and couldn't ask for, or were just like mm-hmm. structurally, like the amount of work, right? yeah. Like you were saying, um, I think that, you know, at that time I was young enough and I had enough energy in my body that I could push myself so far and bounce back. Um, but that changed, right? Um, and like that, yeah. Just the sheer amount of um, of work and the and the culture around school, right? Where things like I didn't
0: know were unhealthy for me. Yeah. You know. Wow. But, like, I, I mean, like it yeah. just makes that was like when you talked about note taking. I would that was just yep. like a flashing <laughs> light was just like going off in my head because I was like. Yes, that's exactly how I felt. Like people yeah. never understood it. People never understood why I didn't like to take notes and it's so frustrating that they never understood that. Yeah. For me, taking notes is it it distracts me. Like I'm not I'll have all these notes like and it would be so frustrating because it's like, "Oh my god, they're so adamant about like <laughs> no because I had teachers that would like literally they would make you show them your notebook at the end of class to prove that you had taken notes
1: the worst and it was
0: the worst and it's like now that i think about it like that's so unfair to, to like yep. ADHDers and, and folks like us you know because it's like mm-hmm. you know i could like literally i'll take all and then i end of course those are like that that person's class i ended up struggling a lot in because <laughs> they would force me to like take all these notes so then at the end of the day oh my god okay here are my three pages of notes, yeah. And then I go look at them, and I'm like, "What? What is this about? What does this mean?" <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, I can barely read what I've written. Like, <laughs> yeah, I just was yeah. literally copying words from the blackboard, and now I don't know. I have not learned anything, right? right. And So it's just like, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah. Because then they would equate it. It's like this, but to them, it's like no if you're not taking notes then you're not learning then you're not going right. to absorb and that just shows how it's like neurotypical cuz there's so many things that neuro the deficit is actually a neurotypical deficit right and the autistics and ADHDers can do it better and there here's right. one example because they were like no because if you because the neurotypicals if you don't right. and that's fine because but that's them but it's like if you right. don't um if you don't pay attention, uh, no. If you don't take notes, then you won't remember it, and like that's fine for people like that they need to take notes. But then it's like I I'm the opposite. I'm like, no, I can't. I I won't. Like I my memory is like I can. I have a really good memory, so like if I can straight up remember if I'm paying attention, I can remember what was taught. Um, but I can't just like take all these notes and then and then like oh I guess. Yeah. Anyways.
1: Yeah, I really resonate with that. Yeah. I also like never made outlines, right? Like mm-hmm. I would have just start writing my essay. Yeah. And, like my brain, my brain does all that inside of my brain, and like I don't need to do that on paper, like that kind of organizing. Like so that's just not how I do things. And I remember like. Having like major struggles with teachers being like, please don't make me write an outline. Like, you're gonna make it my paper worse if you make me write an outline. Yes. <laughs> I remember one time we had this test, um, and it was like the test was writing an essay, but you had to like prepare your outline ahead of time. And mm. the outline was like, or the, the essay was like on the concept of evil. And I kept calling it my evil outline, which was so satisfying wow. because, Oh Yeah. Because I'm like,
0: outlines are evil. Outlines um, are evil, yeah. But, you know, like, yeah, so, so
1: I'm, a, I'm an educator, right? And mm-hmm. so I think a lot about pedagogy, and I care a lot about pedagogy. And um, one of the things that has always been true for me in the way I teach is, is that I prioritize um, holding space for difference, right? And mm-hmm. for... And, and this is actually, this is also where my, you know, my neuroqueerness comes in really handy, right? Yeah. Um, is that I sort of let every single student approach things in a way that's going to be best for them. And my brain is so good at holding different kinds of information and different kinds of patterns and like shifting on a dime, right? That I can like talk to one student one way and talk to a different student another way and right, like shifts shift gears really really quickly um so i i really prioritize like like what is what does this student need to learn right and can i hold space in my classroom for all the different types of learning um that students can do and i you know i think that is actually one of my greatest strengths as a teacher is um you know just kind of letting students tell you what they need right and like trusting them and like guiding them too, right? Because they're still learning what they need, but they also know what they need. And and holding space for like, I'm going to let the student like work on the like work from the hypothesis of their own knowledge about themselves, right? And then, um, and if something doesn't work, like we can try again, and we can like, and I can add my insight, but like really letting it come from them.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. that's really great. I think. That's fantastic, you know, just um, because it's recognizing that everyone works differently and everyone has strategies that work best for them. And so I really, really, um, really love it when I come across someone that, you know, is aware of that. And I think, you know, for you, because of being neuroqueer, of course, um, that was probably... um, really really helpful uh you know really it played a role um right. but i mean even like like certain neurotypicals that you know began to to understand more like there's this story that i like to tell a lot um mm-hmm. about uh so i read about this accommodation that this teacher in brazil did because you know i follow since i'm half brazilian and ever since i started this whole advocacy journey i mm-hmm started following some Brazilian accounts uh, online as well on social media and stuff. And I saw this story about this, uh, at this school, there was a a student with ADHD that she had scored poorly on the test, she got like 28% or something. So then the teacher went to talk to her and she explained that she had hyperactive ADHD. And so she needs to stim a lot and move around um and and so she's not able to do that in class and you know it can kind of throw her off and um and then so this professor um he had a after that conversation he had a a meeting like a a conversation with the whole class about neurodiversity and kind of explaining you know ADHD brains and and how they work and uh, so and so and then a few other students came for it. I think there were like, right. there was one more student, at least one more student with an ADHD diagnosis, and there were a couple more that had, you know, that could relate to, um, you know, some of what was being described. They're probably right. neurodistinct as well. Um, and then he ended up, what he did, which was so brilliant, is he made space in between the last two rows, So these students could walk around during, so they could move around during class without missing instruction. Um, And it worked so brilliantly that the next quiz, that same person that had gotten 28 scored like 93%. Yeah. Um, And then... That makes total sense to me. Yeah. It's just like... And it's so sad because I think, okay, like, I mean, this is brilliant. Like, this is one school that this brilliant professor was able to make, like, had this clicked in his brain and he made this great accommodation. And, but it's like so many, it just makes me think that there's so many schools that don't do that. And that the, what a lot of these schools do, which is so harmful is that they separate the the disabled students a lot Mm -hmm. of times. And, you know, when they're doing that, it's, like, kind of doing... It's a, doing a disservice on both ends. So you're doing a disservice to the neurodivergent student because it's making them feel like they can't be included as, as mm-hmm. part of the regular class, that it has to be, like, some different special thing. Mm-hmm. Um right. And, like, it would be more inclusive if we're actually, like, part of the whole group. And it's doing a disservice to the neurotypical classmates because they're not going to learn about neurodiversity. Um, right. And I think that it was just so brilliant, like, how this professor did things, like, because it's not only he's helping the neurodistinct folks, but he's helping the non-neurodistinct folks by learning and, and understanding. Um,
1: yeah, and this is where it also, like like, the political structure becomes, like, really a thing because part of what happens is if you have a classroom of, like, you know, 40 kids, right? Then it's like, how do you hold space for every individual when you're like, oh, so overwhelmed, right? And mm-hmm. you're like alone in this classroom with 40 kids, right? And yeah. so it's like, also a matter of what are the resources? Because like, yes, as a teacher, it's always your responsibility to do your absolute best by your students, right? Even if you don't have resources. <laughs> but this is also where like, lack of funding for schools, yeah. right, becomes a huge issue, um, because it's, yeah, it's really hard to, um, yeah, to hold space, uh, for everyone when there like, it literally isn't space, you know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think a, a big thing that I, like, a big policy for me personally is, like, saying yes if there's not any good reason to say no, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times, kids will ask things, and I see so many teachers just saying no because, like, they, it hasn't occurred to them before mm-hmm. that this could be an option, yeah. right? Like they're used to doing it this way, they're used to like this being the policy, and so they just say no automatically, right? And so I, that's one of the things I really I try to say yes to my students unless there's something that's like, oh, well, that's dangerous, we're not doing that, or like that's gonna, you know, yeah. Um, not work in some way, but, like, to, to really consider everything students are asking for, um, and then, you know, and, yeah, because, again, like, letting them, I mean, I also work with older students, right, I work with, like, you know, mostly teenagers, um, sometimes middle schoolers, so they're already knowing more about what they need, right, if you're working with, like, little kids, like, yes, they need a lot more guidance, yeah, um, but, yeah, right, just kind of, like, what are the possibilities you can imagine and and a lot of times i think part of it is that teachers um, think that like they need to hold all the imagining for themselves and for the classroom it's like let the students imagine for you as well right like let it be a collaborative imagination um, a collective imagination and um because that's how the teacher is going to learn Right, and that's how the classroom is going to actually grow together instead of just being like, you know, this little factory. Yeah. Right? yeah.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit too about uh, the kind of if you experience mm-hmm. like in regards to your physical disabilities, mm-hmm. um, what kind of ableism you've experienced, um. In terms of those, and if there's any intersectionality with um, the ableism, like what in what ways it's similar, and in what ways would it be different than the ableism you receive in terms of your neurodistinctness?
1: Yeah, that is a fascinating and very large question. <laughs> so I think I'll I'll have like many different forms of answer.
0: Sure. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, like just so much ableism, like constant, never ceasing ableism um, mm-hmm. in every aspect of my life. You know, like I've uh, when I first started. Uh, so, so I have EDS, right? Um, Ehlers Danlos syndrome, mm-hmm. um, which is hypermobility joint syndrome. Right, it's um, basically like the 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 stuff that's supposed to hold my joints together. Right, the, the, the ligaments, right, the tendons. Um, they don't they don't have, they're not strong, they're, they're way too loose and way too flexible, mm-hmm. um, so my, my body is basically, like, falling apart all the time, um, like, dislocating all the time, mm-hmm. um, and the only thing that holds it together is muscle, like, the muscle takes, like, the place of the, mm-hmm. of the tendons and joints, which it's not supposed to do, like, that's not what it's <laughs> yeah. for, mm-hmm. um, so I'm in pain literally all the time, mm-hmm. um, and, can't do a lot of things. And like, that's one of my disabilities. I also get migraines. I also, um, I think I have a mild case of of POTS, which I can't remember what it stands for, but it basically has to do with like body regulation, um, and like body position and, and how your body regulates itself, um, including like heartbeat and temperature. And, um, essentially it means that if I stand for like more than like 15 seconds, I start getting really dizzy, like sort of stand still. I can, I can walk fine, but standing still, um, it's a whole thing. Anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, constant, constant ableism. I mean, so much medical ableism. Um, I was in pain for five years, like daily pain, like totally, you know, like all of my like function was like declining, like just really not well. Right. Mm. I mean, increasingly not well, getting worse and worse and worse for five years before I got my diagnosis. Um. Because I was not taken seriously, you know. Yeah. Um, and especially, I think as you know, an, an AFAB person, right? Like, mm-hmm. I my pain was dismissed, and there was no like, there's no investigation, right? It was just like, oh, like let's prescribe you some meds. Um, and yeah, I mean, my experience with the medical system has just been so horrendous. I am so <laughs> traumatized yeah. by the medical system. Um. But there are, like, there's so many aspects of it, like being on the bus, for example, um, and needing to sit down and having, you know, like sitting in, like, the disabled section, right, up front and Mm -hmm. having people stare at me because I don't look disabled and I don't look elderly. Um, and I've had people comment. I've had people say, like, give up your seat. And I have to say things like, um, I need to sit here, um, yeah. And I would feel, I would, I would feel this intense anxiety every time I got on a crowded bus and had to ask for someone to give up a seat, it, like, I would, like, almost cry, because um, it was so hard to be invisibly disabled, yeah. um, and, and have everyone looking at me like, you know, they didn't know, like, they, you know, like, just with such
0: yeah. judgment,
1: right? And it was always hard for me to tell, too, like, how much of this judgment is, is coming from external and how much of it is a judgment I fear and, and projecting, mm. right? And it's like hard to tell.
0: True. Um, yeah. I mean, it can be like, cause I've experienced a lot of that. Like, mm-hmm. um, I actually just recently found out that to pre board, like when you're going on a flight, at least here in the U S um, you can, pre-board, like, I used to think that you had to have uh, a, like, visibly physical right. disability, and you, d- I found out recently, because I just decided to, like, Google it, and I was, like, curious, um, and I found out that you don't need to, right. it can be, like, because I have sensory sensitivities, and it's, like, it could be that, because, like, I feel, like, so many times, I was, like, darn it, I wish I had gotten, I wish I had been able to board sooner,
1: because yeah. I get
0: so overwhelmed, like so many people, so many bags, and then like there's no space for my bag, and then I'm like trying to get space for my bag, and I'm I literally get sensory overload from all that. So, yeah. um so then I realized that, oh, okay, like any disability I could pre board. And yeah. then I'm like, oh okay. So then I decided to um to do that and uh and I vent, you know, at uh, the first couple times I did it, like I didn't have a little lanyard or anything, so I, it was fine. Like the staff was fine. They were, I think, sometimes they're just a little bit confused because they're like, "Oh, like, do you need a wheelchair?" And I'm like, "No, I'm just, I'm disabled. I need to pre-board, you know." Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and they they are fine. Like, thankfully, I I. Don't recall ever having an issue with like the staff letting me on, yeah. um but it's the looks from other people. you do yeah. get looks and it's like ah, it's just like they don't realize like how harmful it is like um like how they're making you feel like and they're judging you and they don't even know like it's like it's so funny because it's like they think that they're like you know that you're wrong or whatever because they think that they're like standing up for someone that they feel like deserves the, the pre-boarding more than you um right. but they're actually it's
1: a zero-sum game right? yeah like yeah
0: you're actually like they're harming like they're actually being prejudiced themselves so yes. yeah and then it's like and it's like now, so then I ended up getting a lanyard because I found out that you could order, I could order this lanyard like from the UK that I had seen like other autistics posting about. Um, and it's like, it says basically, I have a hidden disability, please be patient. Um, and uh, so then I started wearing that, like I'll wear that at the airport. Um, sometimes like, you know, usually not when I fly, I I wear, I wear that. Um, cause like, and, and I feel like some people are like less judgy or they're like, oh, okay, I see. Cause like some people just don't even realize like that there is, that there are hidden disabilities and then they're like, oh, okay, hidden disability. And I feel like a lot of people would just be like, oh, okay, I see. Um, and I think that there's some people that still just don't really get it. And it's just cause they still, like, I still do get some looks, um Mm -hmm. so i don't know like it was just um that that resonated with me like when you were talking about the looks um yeah like that was definitely very frustrating uh like it it, i've had that experience as well um and and then also about medical ableism um i read so many horror stories about people particularly um, AFAB that um, will try to get a diagnosis for autism and ADHD. And then the, the, the actual professional will tell them, oh, you can't be autistic because you walked up the stairs. You can't be autistic because you were in a relationship. I'm like, God, that's so damaging. And that's like, I mean, it's showing how little education there is even like to become like when you when you're studying psychology and like mm-hmm. psychiatry like how little education there is on neurodiversity and you know my um uh, yeah. my therapist still talks about that you know like she happens to know a lot about neurodiversity but she says mm-hmm. most of what she knows she learned after grad school right. um and because like they really don't teach it and then it's just so damaging to have professionals have that kind of view like it's so ableist like so for them that they're basically saying that autistic people are supposed to not be in relation like are are not be in relationships and not walk it's just like oh my goodness um
1: yeah, I mean, that's definitely been the story of my disability is, like, people being like, well, if you're disabled, then, like, you shouldn't be able to do this thing. It's like, well, hello. Well, like, why don't we... Is not how life works. Like, <laughs> certain things I can't do, certain things I can do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like everyone. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah, I, I've been told over and over and over again that I'm not disabled enough to receive aid while I, like can't feed myself and i'm starving like i it's a whole it's a whole thing i've been in this whole process with ihss in home supportive services um and basically have been told that like because i'm not inches away from death that i don't deserve care um and it's rough it's real rough you know oh, um and the lack of sensitivity and like trauma-informed behavior and people who like encounter traumatized people regularly it's it's wild to me it's like your job you're, you're a social worker how are you this not trauma sensitive you know yeah. um and yeah i mean there's so there's so many ways that um yeah that it, that being disabled right i mean like, that's the thing too right like i have all these illnesses right it's not the illnesses that disable me it is society that yeah me. um and I, I, yeah, I've encountered ableism everywhere. Like I, I've been fired for being disabled, you know, <laughs> like I, it's been really, really rough and, um, you know, and like, it's fascinating to, like you asked about sort of the, the difference between being physically disabled and, and, um, and having, you know, sort of this neuroqueerness and like how those things kind of, um, are different or similar. Right. And yeah. It's It's been interesting because in some ways, having this physical disability, people are more understanding, right, of, of, like, more concrete things, right, like, but also it's invisible, so it's this kind of weird double bind where, like, people are much less friendly towards, like, my mental maladies than my physical ones, mm-hmm. generally speaking, right? But then also because they're invisible, it's like, it's interesting how some people are able to abstract and some aren't in this particular way, right? Like, there's this sense of, um, yeah, like, some some folks are able to kind of, like, imagine beyond what they are witnessing, right? Yeah. Um, and And, like, believe me, and some people aren't. And and some people believe me on like a surface level, but don't really believe me like yeah. down, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's, I think part of what is so disabling about our society is that there is a built in mistrust, mm-hmm. right? Like part of the culture is to not believe people. And, yeah. um, there's this whole sense that like people are like trying to scam, you know, things, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, that, you know, people are trying to take advantage of the system, right, and mm-hmm. people are just, you know, being lazy or whatever, and they don't want to, like, do it for themselves, so they're just, like, you know, relying on the system to do it for them, right, and mm-hmm. it's like, come on, y'all, like, people,
0: yeah. You know,
1: generally speaking, people want to be able to create things for themselves, and, like, don't, you know, aren't, like, seeking out aid they don't need. If someone's mm-hmm. seeking out aid, it's because they need it. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you know, even mm-hmm. if the re- like reason is like, I'm tired, that's a valid reason.
0: It's a valid reason. Know? That's valid. That's I, valid. I don't even laziness, I don't
1: think laziness is a thing. I um, agree. I, I, yeah, like, why do we even have that concept, it's right? So like, if Yeah. If someone is not doing something there's a reason they're not doing mm-hmm. something and like it's valid to not want to do things yeah it's valid <laughs> and or not be able to and yeah so yeah so i think there's this built-in mistrust mm-hmm. right and and so i feel like all the time i'm encountering this sense of like i mean mate like if you convince me i'll believe you but until i convince someone there i'm disbelieved right it's, the default is disbelief and then there are people I encounter who, who have a, a default of belief and they are the people I spend my time with, you know? Um, yeah. But it's, it's hard and, and um, that stuff gets so ingrained, you know? It gets so, so, so ingrained. And it's ingrained in me too, right? And so if people aren't actively working to deal with their own ableism, it's going to be there and it's yeah. going to be there unchecked. You know? Yeah,
0: I feel that like I feel, oh my God, so many times in my life, I've been called lazy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's just like, because people don't understand executive dysfunction, because, right. oh my gosh, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's also this whole harmful, you know, productivity, culture, yes. and all that. Um <sighs>
1: Capitalism.
0: capitalism yes and <laughs> yeah capitalism yeah. and ableism and it's, it's all intertwined um very
1: much so uh-huh. yep. um, because like if if, the, if your value to society is your productivity right then and not even productivity capitalism isn't even about productivity it's just about extraction Right, if your value to society is what society can extract from you, mm-hmm. and and you don't have as much to extract from, or you're not as regular about what you can be extracted from, like yeah. that's not a grammatically fine sentence, but whatever. Um, then you know, then you're devalued, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and it's so sad because like. I know what i have to offer yeah right i know what the people who i care about have to offer like i see it and i feel it and um and it's beautiful and it's amazing and it's you know and, and it, it could improve the world right and it does improve the world but there's so few avenues and I, most of the people i know who are disabled who are neuroqueer are like having to forge their own paths which is in of itself like such a huge labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, this is one of my greatest experiences of life is that I'm constantly having to work to just work. Right? Like I don't even get to just work. I have to work to work. Um, because yeah. it's not, n- nothing is like, well, not nothing. I, I take back that absoluteness. Um, but, you know, much of life is not already built for me or laid out for me. Yeah. So, so then I'm, you know, I'm having to kind of both construct the thing and then do the work within the thing, and those happen simultaneously and, and in mm-hmm. concert with each other. And it's such a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> I like really wish I lived in a world where I could just do do the things I'm good at, you know, and, and get to like contribute in a way that feels good to me. And um, and I still try to do that as much as I can. Um, but how that how that is. recognize um i think is is different like i don't think society really recognizes it the way that like my community does you know
0: yeah absolutely like i've i've always felt a lot more understood by by the neuroqueer community than i have by by neurotypical society and i noticed this even like with friends and stuff like Mm -hmm. even my well-intending neurotypical friends sometimes they just don't know how to properly support me and how to accommodate me and what I need. And, like, when I'm distressed, like, because, like, my neuroqueer friends, they understand. They're like, Mm -hmm. I'm here for you. Like, I'm sorry you're going through this. I totally understand. Uh, How can I help you? Um, you Just they, they know how to, like, validate and reassure me. And my neurotypical friends, they're like, oh, no, but, you see, you have to see it this way, and, and, no, because it's, because this and that, but, and they're just, like, trying to, like, get me to see it in this way that I just simply don't see it. Right. And um, it's like, can you just turn down the volume on the music? That's the only problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my God, my sister um, does that. Yeah. not to be a thing, you know, just, just, like, make the
1: sensory
0: experience go away. Yeah,
1: like, like, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I find even with, like, my, you know, other neuroqueer friends, like, they don't always get it either. Like, I've had experiences where, like, I think someone's gonna get it, and then all of a sudden, like, I have a panic attack, and they freak the fuck out. Am um, I allowed to swear? Oops. Yeah,
0: you can, you can swear. You can totally swear. Um,
1: they freak the fuck out. Mm. You know? yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, just, just having this identity also doesn't mean that you've, like, sorted through things in yourself, right? Like, so I think that um, I, I can I can clearly feel the difference between people who have done the work and people who haven't. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and by done the work, I mean are doing the work because it's never done.
0: It's never it's, done. It's, it's never done. Yeah. yeah. It's also like yeah, because it's like some people think that it's like, oh, okay, I'll read this article that you shared or this or that. And then, like, they think that they're done, like, right. that they understand now. But it's, right. it's like, no, like, obviously, like, you know, it's their choice, like, how much they want to um, learn about this stuff. But it's, like, if they want to be a true ally, that's, there's more to allyship than that. It's It's constant, yeah. you know? It's, like, constantly learning and then also constantly advocating. And I try to make a point, To my neurotypical friends, like, whenever I post on social media and stuff now, or when I'm addressing mostly neurotypicals, I try to make the point to them, you guys have to help us out, like, advocating for this stuff that we're trying to advocate. Because it's, like, it's one thing, because, like, I have friends that they'll be, like, oh, um," you know, I'll be telling them, hey, you know, you should check this thing that I did, you know, but this and that, and they'll be, like, whoa, it's great that you found this passion, um, and it's like, it's, I'm not making kind of like, it's a little bit of a microaggression because <laughs> I'm like, it's not just a passion. It's our life. It's my life. It's our lives. Yeah. <laughs> it's disability rights. Yeah. It's yeah. like just
1: stumble across this cool thing.
0: Yeah. It's I not just that this that cool up. nifty thing. Yeah. I'm not doing. Well, for, that's what's hard,
1: right? Yeah. Not having the choice. Mm-hmm. Like I mean you do you know, there's always choice, right? And like that I could be choosing to like not try to like you know, support myself and, and work through things. Mm-hmm. But I also there's things I can't ignore. There are things my body literally won't let me ignore, right? Like if I push myself too hard, migraine. Shut down mm-hmm. completely. Like just you know, like I, I literally cannot push myself beyond my limits because I will just completely stop functioning, right? Yeah. I will just be in pain for, you know, hours and hours and hours and um and not be able to do anything. And like part of what that is is my body saying, like, you're doing too much. If you're not gonna stop, like we're gonna stop you. You know? Mm-hmm. And like so there are things where it's like, yeah, like I this is also where I'm like in there is a gift to this, right? Of like I can't be unhealthy because if I am, then I'm really unhealthy, right? Like my body will just like my body cannot sustain itself while I'm not practicing healthy practices for myself, and like that physically and mentally, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really hard and really frustrating because I would like to sometimes take a vacation <laughs> so from my yeah. needs to be constantly like healthy and working on myself. Like I do PT every day, right? Mm-hmm. Like therapy once a week, like all the things, right? Yeah, All the time I'm working on it. And I'd love to just be like, okay, I'm going to take a vacation and like not think about this for a week, um, but I can't. And that's tiring and that's hard, but it also means that I like, I, I consider myself a very healthy, unhealthy person, you know, mm-hmm. because I've had to cultivate such a deep health and, and I have to take care of myself so well in order to be able to, to exist at all um yeah. and you know and that that has created a lot of insight and um and self-care and like you know disrupting the things that were taught to me and and reteaching myself things that actually work for me yeah
0: yeah it's um i feel like myself doing that more like allowing myself to take breaks and stuff um yeah you know because you know i had been so conditioned to to not to like not give myself breaks because i i felt like i didn't deserve them or whatever like you know because of this whole culture you yeah. know it's so damaging like you have to like you you're making your body deserve the, the breaks instead of, like, honoring your body, like, making sure your body's okay, and, yeah. Um.
1: Yeah. To, to clarify, too, when I say that, you know, there's a there's a gift in it, I get to say that because that's how I want to look at it. Mm-hmm. But if anyone else calls my disability a gift, I'm going to be mad at them, yeah <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because um, disability, I mean, it's not. Like, the, the disability aspect, right? like Like, I have the body I have. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no there's this this stuff is genetic, like it was never not gonna be true for me. Um the severity of it didn't necessarily have to be this way, but it was always gonna be true for me. Yeah. And um, you know, like I I have to love my own existence. Like I have to. I I can't survive without loving myself. And, um, and that's for me, you know. I'm not yeah. describing that to anyone else. So, like, this is from for me personally. I have to love myself um, as a part of my own survival. And so, you know, so I, that means loving all of myself um, in some way. Um, not always, all the time. Right? Sometimes mm. I I'm in despair as well. Um, but I, yeah, that is part of how I I move through the world. And you know but i don't love the structure of society that makes it this hard you know and um and and i don't see that as a gift and i don't Mm -hmm. uh i don't agree with it right yeah Um, and and, you know it is really hard to build a society that works for everyone like if it's a big Mm -hmm. society right yeah um it's really hard to do that. It's it's hard even in a community. It's hard in you know if you've got a hundred people. That's still really hard. Um, it's really hard when you got millions, and um, and also the attempt matters. And there isn't really an attempt um, that I've experienced, generally speaking. Like most of the spaces I encounter aren't really trying. Yeah. Um, and some are. And some are, and so, those are the ones I stick with, mm-hmm.
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it's also, like, finding, like, for me, too, now that I'm more aware of all this stuff, uh, I've been able to find, spa- find friends and spaces that I feel more accommodated and understood. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, of course, there's always, you know, it's never perfect, cause like, yeah. yeah, I feel like like you were saying too, like there, there have been I- instances where I thought I I was understood by a certain person, and it really turns out that it didn't really seem that way. Um, yeah, it's, and then like yeah, there's just all sorts of stuff like how vague the world is and and stuff like friendships like can be really vague like because i feel like you never know i mean i guess that the people when you know you just kind of know but so many times i found myself in like gray areas with people where i don't know if we're like acquaintances or if we're like friends right um and then it's like especially in like school situations and stuff like Mm -hmm. even with like teachers and and whatnot like there i've had teachers even recently that will will make it just and not by their own fault not like that they're trying to do this like but because of the way i am and the way that things are not made clear it's they make it very vague like well is this a strictly professional relationship or is this also a friendship? And a lot of times it's portrayed as both and then something will happen. Like I have a meltdown or something. um, And then, you know, it's all like, you know, the, all the friendly, sometimes it feels like the friendliness goes away. Like it becomes this very strict, like professional thing. Um, Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, yeah, um, it's just one of those things.
1: Yeah, I really recognize that, yeah. right? This sort of like people wanting to engage with you when they're like getting like the the really like fun parts of your yeah, stuff, exactly, you. Yeah, know,
0: exactly, exactly.
1: And the interesting parts of you, and then like you, you struggle for a second. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, actually, never mind. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like that's oh, that's just not how. People were, I don't know, maybe, and maybe part of it is that I can't mask as effectively as others, right? Like, I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I have my fear training, I can mask pretty well, but I've stopped using, like, I, I'm not someone who hides who I am or hides my struggles, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that a lot of people really do hide all of that. And so then it's like this taboo to express it. And it's like, well... There are circumstances where I can't help but express it, right? Mm-hmm. Something happens and overwhelms me. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then people don't really want to engage. And, um, yeah, and that hurts a lot, yeah. you know? It does. It yeah. hurts every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's really interesting to use this term vagueness, you know? And mm-hmm. I'm thinking about vagueness, and I'm thinking about it a little bit differently than, than you were expressing. But, like, I think part of what I really um, struggle with in society at large is is vagueness, right? Like, I'll, you know, I'll, like, look up a, you know, like, a location or something, trying to find accessibility information, and Mm -hmm. it's all very vague, right? I'm like, will there be a chair where I'm going, right? Like, Mm -hmm. will the chair have arms? Like, there are things I need to know. Um, how tall is this chair because I'm a tiny five foot person and if the chair is too tall and my legs are dangling then my joints hurt right -hmm. like there are all sorts of things where I like need all this specificity yeah and and I don't expect like you know a website to necessarily say we have chairs and here are their dimensions right Mm -hmm. like I don't necessarily expect that but there should be an avenue to ask yeah There should be a very clear and welcoming avenue to
0: ask. Right? Yeah. There should
1: be some kind of, like, if you have any accessibility questions, here's he- who you talk to. And we want to hear your questions. Yes. Right. Because you can't anticipate everyone's needs. It's just mm. not possible. And and that shouldn't be a standard, right? Yeah. Um, but, but one of the things to, like, understand, like... You know, now I'm speaking slightly to the the neurotypical society. Um, one of the things to understand, right, is that it's so damaging to live in a world that is constantly um, ignoring your needs yeah. and making you feel like you don't, you're not valid to express them, making you feel like you know ex- you're extra or you're needy if you're expressing your like basic needs. Yeah. Um. So you, it's not enough to just like make the information. Like to have an avenue of information you also have to welcome people you we also have to encourage people to ask um yeah. because people are going to feel like that that barrier that asking is going to be hard um so so really like genuinely encouraging people to ask about accessibility is important um and yeah i you know <laughs> i yeah. really wish there was more of that because there's so many things where like i end up like not going to something or Mm -hmm. going and then having to leave because i it's not accessible to me and i had no way of finding out that information
0: yeah no for sure i think that there does need to be um a lot more understanding and like awareness and and openness openness in terms of um like having uh you know being open to these questions and making it so we can feel comfortable uh asking these questions because i've had this before as well with um you know just the rejection sensitive dysphoria that i've developed and i think many of us have as neurodivergent people because our needs are constantly not being met or being you know we're being told that they're not um uh, valid or, um, you know, yeah, like, uh, and then it's like, we feel like we can't even ask. Like a lot of times I feel like I can't even ask. And then that's the whole thing also that I talk about with unmasking is Mm -hmm. how it's not just, I mean, it's not just a matter, like there's so many layers. So you can't just pull off a mask and, and be like, I mean because there are things like you said like for me too there are things that I can't mask and um and even the things that I can mask it's like I can't just be it's about being comfortable because now it's like it's like so I've been reading recently how like there's this whole con like people are trying to I guess like there's like this unmasking coaching stuff going on or whatever but it's like all it's it's still problematic because it's placing the it's placing the burden of all of this on the to say disa- on the disabled person. Right. It's making it just about like oh, you know, we have to become we have to unmask and we have to make ourselves comfortable unmasking but it's like no no, you guys, society... I'm not making myself uncomfortable. Yeah. You're making me
1: uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. So, like, I
1: don't need to change that. You do. <laughs> yeah,
0: and it's like, yeah. we're not going to feel comfortable unmasking if, if we're not, you know... Yeah. Yeah, if other people aren't providing an environment that makes us comfortable. So... Yeah. Yeah. The danger is real. Like, mm-hmm. the danger is real. Like,
1: the, you know... um, the cost of asking the cost of unmasking can be very, very real. Right. And, um, there's like many things that I am disadvantaged in because I choose to be open about my disability and because I choose to ask for accommodation. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's this like impossible situation where it's like, do I ask for the thing I need because I, I need it. Um, or do I, not ask for the thing i need because if i ask for the thing i need like the more i ask the more this person's gonna get frustrated with me Mm -hmm. or like the more likely i will be seen as a liability or like you know just like all these things where it's like choosing i'm constantly choosing between yeah right and you don't get to just have them all (laughs) you have to be like Mm -hmm. what what need do i prioritize today and and all of them are are like vital yeah um and it's, yeah, that's that's such an impossible situation to be in. And like, I also, I like, uh, it makes me so frustrated how like, I know so many people who would answer the question, um, what are your access needs with, I don't have any. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no, you own, everyone does. Everyone yeah. has access needs, right? Um, it's just that, like, some peoples are already taken care of automatically.
0: Yes. Because mm-hmm. society
1: just decides, like, this is, like, this is what's normal, so we're just going to cover this. And anything outside of that, we're not going to cover. So then if you have needs outside of, of what's considered normative, then you're constantly having to ask for them, or struggle because you can't ask for them, and, and people who get them covered think they don't have needs. And like and then it's like oh that person's needy i'm not needy that person's needy i also don't believe in the word needy mm-hmm. i'm like literally everyone has needs why do you think some people have more needs than others like yeah. everyone has needs um just some people's are fulfilled more than others yeah
0: and seen yeah. And, and acknowledged seen and
1: recognized and validated and yeah yeah and not stigmatized
0: yeah oh
1: yeah
0: yeah mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> <laughs> Oh. um My next I have my next question for you uh, is a little bit about uh, being non-binary. How did coming out as non-binary compared to coming out uh, as neuroqueer?
1: Mm, Yeah, Um, that's a a really interesting question. Um, I mean, like, I don't know if I would use the word coming out
0: to describe
1: my experience. because I, coming out is a weird thing, right? Yeah. Like, it's not, um, you know, again, you don't, like, come out and then are done, right? Yeah. It, it, um, it's sort of like, am I choosing to make someone aware that their assumption about me isn't accurate, or am mm-hmm. I not, right? Yeah. And sometimes you're in spaces where people aren't making those assumptions about you, and you don't need to come out at all. Um, and yeah, so so it's kind of like a complex I, I think coming out is a complex notion because it is it uh, it entails this idea of assumption, right? Mm-hmm. If you're coming out against a normative notion of self, right? Like you're acknowledging that there's this normative notion. and um I yeah, so I've never really thought of it as coming out for me personally. yeah, um, although like again, you know, very valid for everyone who wants to embrace that sort of notion of themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I discovered both these things about myself pretty late, right? Um, Mm I figured out I was non-binary around like 22, 23. Um, I never had an option (laughs) like that really fit me. Like I, I knew people who were non-binary, right? Like I had a, a friend in high school who, um, who was non-binary, trans, and um, and like lots of friends in college. Um, and so I had—I mean, all my friends were always queer. Let's let's be real. Yeah. Like I—I I, I feel like every day I find out that another like childhood friend was you know trans, right? Like it's, just, um, it's so funny. Um, but anyway, uh, I. Yeah, I definitely. Um, sorry, my brain just went. I'm not sorry. No, not that's sorry okay. about that. Not yeah, apologizing. Retconning <laughs> that apology. Mm-hmm. Um, brain focusing, refocusing. I'm gonna take a sip of water. There we go. That's mm-hmm. gonna do it. Yeah. So being non-binary, I I don't have a I don't have like like gender like physical gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. In the way that a lot of trans people do, right? Yeah. Um, I feel the most gender euphoric when I'm not affecting my body, right? When I'm not like changing things about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel the most gender euphoric when I'm sort of like in my most uh like bare and and just like h- how I grow kind of state, right? Um, yeah. Just, like which is, which is different, I think, than a lot of of trans folks, and, um, and so in that sense, like, I didn't get a lot of examples of, of what that could look like, right, and like, growing up, like, I, I knew you could be gay or straight, um, I knew maybe you could be bi, but, like, that was, like, I didn't really, you know, and I knew trans people existed, I, and I, like, knew a few trans people, but I didn't, again, have any sense that it was an option for me, um, I knew I wasn't straight. Like, I always knew I wasn't straight. But yeah. I also knew I wasn't gay. And so I was like, what the fuck am I? <laughs> so, yeah. And that just persisted for a long time. And, and for a long time, too, I was like, I think I'm clear. But, like, I don't know if I can claim this identity because, like, I'm not, I see what other people are, are engaging with and struggling with. And I don't have the same type of struggle. So, like, am I, like, appropriating this identity if I claim it for myself? um and i felt that way for a really long time and then i had a friend who um who like let me try on the identity who was like who encouraged me to try on the identity and see how it fit, right yeah. and like was very non-judgmental about me not being certain about things and so i was like okay i'm gonna start using like she they and see how that goes and then very quickly that turned into they them yeah. <laughs> i was like yep done found it great yeah um, yeah, I and mean, I consider myself agender, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't, like, I don't feel like I have inherent gender. And I like to put on gender sometimes. It's a fun, it's a fun costume. Yeah. Um, it's, fun to, it's fun to play with. Um, but, yeah, and, and, and that led me um, really quickly, actually, to my chorus, which is a all-trans, uh, non-binary, intersex chorus um new voices bay area Mm. um they are so great i mean you know again every community has got its flaws but it's an amazing amazing space right and i love singing and i was looking for you know trans community um for non-binary community because i had individual friends who fit that identity but i didn't have like that communal space and i never really had that communal space Mm -hmm. because i had sort of denied it to myself for a very long time. Yeah. Um, slash, you know, it was denied to me. It was both, right? It was kind of, it was both. And um, so, in, yeah, in finding that space, like it just, I just showed up into this space where it was like I didn't have to explain anything. I didn't have to, like, you know, I just, it was just like this immediate acceptance um, and, and, and this incredibly spacious. Um, community where it was like there's so many different ways of being trans in that space too like so many different ways so like no one was like oh you're not like trans in this way like go away (laughs) right Mm -hmm. um it just was really really i felt really accepted in that space um and that became a huge part of of my embrace of that identity and like i found other Queer communities, also, um, you know, trans communities. I'm like in this writing group that that's mostly trans and nice. um, and in all, all queer. And um, like I take this little queer history class that's also mostly trans. Um, interestingly, I found a lot of spaces that like are like queer spaces, like but are also dominantly trans, like aren't necessarily like, exclusively trans, but are I mean, dominantly trans. Yeah. Um. Most of my students these days are trans. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm a teach theater, you know, so it's, like, a a definitely a self selected group. But, um, yeah, I've surrounded myself by trans people. And just, like, being in community like that, um, I love talking about it. I love exploring the nuances of it. But Mm -hmm. the acceptance kind of came once – it came really quickly once I found it, right? Like, once I found it, it was just, like, oh, my God, this is it got it, here I am, and it felt really, really euphoric and really joyful, and even though certain things in my life have gotten harder, right, since I've, I've been out about um, about being trans, yeah. and um, you know, that there, there definitely are things, but the, the sense of empowerment and liberation has exponentially grown in me. And yeah. I actually think that so much of what I've discovered about myself as a neuroqueer person. I mean, I, I use the term neuroqueer, mm-hmm. right? Like I wouldn't use that term if I wasn't queer. Yeah. Um, and I and so much of it has come from the liberation I found in my gender, right? And like I my family narrative growing up was that I was in a really like loving happy, healthy family, and that, uh, I discovered was not true, you know, once I was able to get away from it, um, for, for a bit, right, in college, and so I went through this whole process of kind of reevaluating my entire life, um, and understanding the, you know, the emotional abuses I, I had experienced, and, um, understanding, like, the, the traumas I'd experienced, and, um, and also, like, Breaking my relationship with my mom and uh and there was a lot that i went through in that process but i don't think i could have like really gone through if i hadn't found my queer identity um and so much of understanding my distinctness is also understanding my cptsd right yeah um like that is such a huge part of of my life and i wish it wasn't but it is Mm. um and I, I'm not trying to like fight it in the way I used to, um, right? I'm not thinking about like trying to like get better, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is this trauma is a part of my experience, and I can find ways to um, create healing and health for myself. But this is always going to be a part of me, yeah. Um, and it can't, it cannot be rewritten. Um, so I think that. Yeah, the liberation I felt um, and the the sense of self I felt, right? Like that I was able to carve my own narrative for myself in in my gender expression also helped me like build a new narrative for myself around my my mental health and around my neuroqueerness because um, the narrative that was handed to me was was very far from the reality I experienced. So the process of, of queering... Right? like I love mm-hmm. queer as a verb, um, the process of queering, yeah. um, of taking this thing that I was handed and saying mm, that doesn't, that's not quite right, nah, yeah. that doesn't work for me, and and remolding it and exploring it and um, and really like digging into it to figure out what's there and then reshaping it to something that does work. Um, I like the metaphor of like com- composting, right? Kind of yeah. composting all of that and. and using the energy that gets created um, to, mm. to build something that does work, um, yeah. that does support me. So, yeah, they they really are very intertwined for me, mm-hmm. um, and I think the more I feel liberated in my gender identity, the more I feel liberated in my, you know, like, neuroqueer identity and, and vice versa.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. I think they do, they do go hand in hand for a lot of us. Um, you know, because queerness is about like deviating from right from societal norms in more of a uh, you know gender and and sexuality kind of way, but you know, neuroqueerness in a ne- in a in neurology, a neuronormative kind of way. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's definitely a strong connection there, and. um i think also in terms of like the whole the the queer movement and the neurodivergent movement and the similarities in terms of like how queerness how being queer used to be considered like a disorder or a disease it was in the dsm Uh, oh yes it was yeah (laughs) just like autism and adhd are in the dsm now um and yeah it's like this whole disordered, you know, mentality, like view of it from a very neurotypical lens, which queerness was being viewed from a very heteronormative lens, um, yeah, back then, yeah. Um, so, anyways, yeah, that's I definitely see. I've I've always noticed like the connection with those two. Like once I, I started getting into this, um, whole you know neuroqueerness world I was like oh yeah like no wonder it it is a neuroqueerness um right yeah
1: and I think for me you know I in a lot of ways like the core of my queerness is like philosophical but like I don't know if philosophical is the right word it's it's praxis right um Mm -hmm. it's like this you know this theory and practice and um even more than it is my sexuality or my gender identity i i believe in queerness i believe in taking you know examining things right not just taking things for granted not thinking things are inherent right Mm -hmm. like not thinking like it has to be this way yeah um and and figuring out like what actually works right like that Mm -hmm. the the structure of my life like what i do over and over and over again like you know used to be not conscious and now it is conscious right is Is this structure of like figuring out what's there, right? Noticing things, yeah. Observing things, figuring out what's there, um, understanding how that affects me, understanding how that affects the other people who who are present, right? And then working together to build something that um, that you know engages what works and and engages what doesn't work um yeah and that that process like that's really what queerness is to me right is it's mm-hmm. like it's it's a process of of change and growth yeah and it's like a paradoxical practice uh practice too because it's like it's both entropy and creation in a certain way right like mm-hmm. it's like because i do you know there, there's like things want to fall apart right things want yeah. to sort of decay and like you know there are these systems that hold things static, right? Um, and those systems, if they didn't hold those things static, like if, if we if we kind of disrupt those systems, like what would happen to things? And can mm-hmm. we like change systems that are holding, you know, static in a in a, a bad way, right? Yeah. Um. I don't. The word bad's not. I, I take that back. It, in, in an unhelpful and a non-workable way, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so that's really what queerness is to me. Like, that's the root of it to me. I agree.
0: um, Yeah. 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 I I think just, you know, deviating from these uh, standard molds and, you know, ideas and, yeah, like embracing yourself as as a, a deviation of that. -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's also like a paradox. I mean, I love paradox. I talk about paradox a lot. I can't believe it took me this long to talk about paradox. (laughs) It's also a paradox of like self and other, right? Mm -hmm. That like I'm going to embrace the uniqueness of myself and find this thing that works for me specifically, Mm -hmm. but I'm also going to make space for every other person to do that too. Yeah. And then see how all of that combines yeah right so it's both this like incredibly individual practice but also this like deeply communal practice yeah and um and like that's one of the things i love so much about about identifying as queer right not just like thinking queerly but like having it as an identity right is that i get to connect with other people who are queer and that's part of why it's been so important for me to embrace these identities like and to name these identities right is because I, that's how I connect to people um, yeah the, there's always more nuance than, than any label can hold right?
0: True. Mm-hmm. but
1: in order to find other people who share these identities with me um, I have to have some frame of reference I have to have like a, a search term so to speak mm-hmm. right um, so sort of yeah naming like you know I can call myself neuroqueer I can call myself non binary um, do those words. Capture all the nuance of of how I think about myself and what I experience. No, um, but it's a great way to connect with other people. And then once you connect with other people, then you can dig into the nuances between
0: you. Definitely, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um. Well, I have just a couple more questions for you. I know we're at <laughs> an hour and a half already, but this has been really great. I, I talk a lot. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> I'm great. A very person. It's really great. Um, I think it's been a great... Yeah, Yeah. me too. Um, What has been the most challenging... What would you say has been the most challenging part of this whole neuroqueer journey for you? Like, I know it's a big question.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have an answer. I have more than one answer, because of course I do. Um, I... I think there have been two stages of challenge. I think the first stage was a, uh, a self-recognition, right? Mm-hmm. The biggest initial challenge was understanding about myself, right? Um, because, the nar- again, the narrative of my family was always that I was healthy. Um, uh, even though I, like, I mean, I was born sick, right? Like, mm-hmm. Um, I could have died if I hadn't received medical attention when I was, you know, a newborn. Um, I, I've never been healthy um, physically, you know, mentally. Like, all, there's always been stuff. Um, but I also, uh, the narrative was always that I was fine, right? That everyone was fine. Um, even though, also, like, you know, my mom is not healthy. She also gets migraines, right? She also has a lot of, a lot of things going on. So, so it was, like, but, like, her denial of that, Translated it into a denial of that in me, mm, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I had to break through that denial. That was the first step, and I couldn't do that for a very, very, very long time, yeah. Right? Um, it took, I mean, honestly, it took me, um, a content warning for sexual violence, um, mm. it took me experiencing sexual abuse and getting like acute PTSD from that, mm. um, to uh. To recognize that I was having panic attacks, that I'd been having panic attacks my whole life because my yeah. parents treated it like me throwing a fit, mm. um, right? And so, it like it was stuff like that where like things that were taking me away from my family, experiences in in parts of my life other than my family, um, and not always not always helpful ones, not always good ones, right? Um, would help me understand things that I couldn't understand. While I was in within the narrative that everything was fine, right? Yeah. Um, So I that that recognition, just getting to that recognition, um, was really hard. And I think at this point, I've recognized a great deal of it. But there's always more. Like Mm -hmm. there's always more to kind of reevaluate and reassess. Like. um, you know, it could it, like I I, I, I remember like not that long ago like my mom used to chew this like cinnamon gum mm. that would make me sick. The smell of it mm. would make me so ill, so yeah. nauseous. Um, and she would just she just didn't stop chewing it. Yeah. She, I I would tell her this, and she just ignored me. Um, and like I like I never like thought about that as like horrible. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and then I like remembered that that had happened and i was like oh that was horrible yeah. that was not that was not okay that was not like that was not okay behavior right that at the time i didn't understand that that wasn't okay because that was the whole framework of my world right mm-hmm. was that if i express a need it didn't really get acknowledged um but but now i'm able to kind of go back and be like ah, yep, mm, bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no 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 so um so there are things like that where I, yeah, the recognition of things is really hard, and then it's like, what do you do once you've recognized it, right? Um, because there are all these things that I got taught a certain way and are so ingrained in me, right? All these like, you know, patterns and and um, defense mechanisms and trauma responses that are so ingrained. Yeah. So then it's a question of like, what do you what do you do? Like, I can recognize that like. I'm having a panic attack right now because I'm overheated but I can't move anymore so I can't take this hat off you know like um, there's yeah and so so there's things where it's like I yeah the I have to kind of like figure out um, the, the process I'm in right now is the process of figuring out what to do with the recognition
0: right yeah. and
1: and there, are, there I've made a lot of progress mm-hmm. I will I will acknowledge i think i've made a tremendous amount of progress um but there's always more (laughs) more. and um and it's not clear-cut right Mm -hmm. um and this is part of why i value therapy so much because it's this ongoing long-term commitment to this work and this exploration because it can't happen quickly because it you know it was like 20 years of of this stuff, right? Yeah. And that's—I'm not going to be able to untangle 20 years in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. So there's been a lot of, um, and a lot of a lot of grief. Actually, um, I think grief uh, has been really primary for me um, around the lessons that I'm still learning and the things I don't get to in time. Right, like things that that go poorly because I haven't been able to get past a certain thing yet, right, or mm-hmm. like or things that I like can look back on and be like, well now I would have done this like this, but like at the time I didn't have that, that capacity yeah. right, um, and grief at the ways that other people like still just also can't really handle their shit
0: yeah. <laughs> like, um, and, and the ways that, you know
1: all the things that I lose out on, um, mm. because of all this trauma, um, yeah. but at the same time, there's also all this, like, I want a word that isn't, like, victory or triumph, because mm-hmm. those words feel very aggressive to me, yeah. <laughs> but, like, um, and I don't want accomplishment either, it's too capitalist, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I, I want a word for just, like, success devoid of like a, a patriarchal way to premises capitalism mm-hmm. uh in, 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 you know in implication um oh wow i'm so angry that i can't think of a word right now <laughs> it it's all right that's a, like that. it happens um, yeah i want like yeah there are also a lot of um precious cherished um uh, delightful joyous um uh, uh euphoric moments yeah right, where i
0: gratifying you
1: know, yeah i figure something
0: out yeah right, and i connect
1: with someone mm-hmm. and i um and i do figure it out in time or i or someone we figure it out together
0: or um, yeah
1: or i can mark the growth right? i can be like huh wow that thing that would have like knocked me flat a <coughs> year ago did not rock, knock me flat this time um yeah so there's it's both right, and um yeah so I guess that would be the like those are the two steps I think of challenges is the recognition, and then what do I do with it, and then the third thing, which isn't really a step um and is just more of a constant unfortunately, is just like again society <laughs> um, right, just all the external things that I cannot control that constantly are creating obstacles um but i don't have control over that so i i try to focus on what i do have control over um because yeah letting go of control has been a a huge part of that growth for me yeah um and i'll still bemoan it right i will still Mm -hmm. you know be like that's not fair (laughs) bad job society um but i i not gonna try i'm gonna try to to focus my energy on the things i can control and let myself feel the things i can't um process through the things i can't um but put my energy into you know into the things i can
0: yeah i i can certainly relate to that and i think that's another thing that's been really great really helpful for me with therapy is Mm -hmm. coming to that realization and i that's what why I think therapy is so important and it there it's such a shame that there is such stigma around it um because that's like we all need to do that sometimes to like analyze what's really like I'll have I'll be having like I'll be really anxious really upset uh you know and I'll I'll be like to the point of doing something that's gonna harm me later like I go I I could write an angry message to someone and that's not gonna help in the long term it's gonna make things worse Mm -hmm. um and like so I've been working a lot on uh being able to catch myself like when I'm in that state and when those feelings are building and then acknowledge that you know my impulse to want to write this angry message or whatever is really me trying to avoid the feel it's really me avoiding the feelings by like doing this thing that's going to give me like this temporary temporary feel good thing and then it's right yeah and then it's just so much better cuz like i didn't understand cuz my therapist would tell me about like you know you have to feel the feelings and then i thought that's what i was doing i thought that no. i was like oh no but but when i'm doing this i'm it's because of the feelings so i'm feeling the feelings right. but then i realized that no it's because it's it's i'm the feelings i'm feeling them and they get too intense and i'm doing that because they're too intense um right. so then it's technically not feeling them but then i realized you know something that was really helpful for me um like in the same way that that podcasting is helpful like with stuff that I want to say to the world. Like, when I'm having um, feelings that are private, like, I, of course, I'm not going to, like, publish them, but, like, even just pulling out my phone and recording myself, like, uh, doing an audio recording for, like, 10 minutes or whatever of me just ranting about my feelings, um, uh, or just getting them out, essentially... I started finding that was really helpful because then yep. I'm I do this recording and I talk about my feelings and by the time I'm finished recording I've flushed out my feelings. So yeah. so then I'm not having that impulse to like message so and so or whatever. Um right. and that then yes, then chaos chaos is averted. Um
1: Yeah, I mean this is where I'm like so glad
0: that I'm an artist. <laughs> mm-hmm
1: because i'll like write a song you know yeah. <laughs> and like that's what i do that's what i do when i have a big feeling and i i don't want to share it directly like i want to process it first it's like i write a song right and like that finding the ways to like yeah to find having channels right for for expression and for feeling are really important because like yeah, if you're just sitting in hurt, like that's not necessarily going to be helpful either, right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of what I I think about it, like well, a lot of the way I conceptualize um, feeling your feelings, is that I want to feel it, but I want to keep it moving, mm-hmm. right? Like um, I'll like I'll do like a kind of like a a visual meditation for myself or, you know, sometimes for others as well, this, like, the sense of, like, can you identify where in your body um, the feeling is, right? Like, yeah. um, where is it? Like, feel it. Where, Where's the, the, the mm-hmm. core of the feeling in your body? And can you take that feeling and and loosen it and, and start to dissolve it into your bloodstream and let your breath carry it around your body? Yeah. So it's not gone right mm-hmm. it's still a part of you it's still there but it's not stuck anymore yeah right? it's, not it's not stuck it's not this big stuck thing and yeah that's been really helpful to conceptualize it that way for myself um because yeah stuckness is really hard for me um mm-hmm. and yeah and like kind of keeping that that flow right like letting myself feel it but also letting it letting it release when it's ready to
0: yeah um, it is yeah, a release really helpful yeah because it is like of course you know like when i do these recordings and stuff it's not that their feelings like they're gone forever like but okay. it's like in the moment i've i've i guess cycled through them i'm right. like um and then they're there and like uh you know and then they may come back like if they come back in a day or two or whenever like i could just do the same thing um right. and yeah it's just like it's definitely been a helpful strategy for me um so i i think we might have we might have touched on this a little bit already Mm -hmm. with with what we were talking about um things that make us feel gratified but um my final question is exactly that what has been the most gratifying part of this whole journey for you
1: Yeah. Connecting with other people. Right. Um, using the specificity of my experience to connect to other people's specificity. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's so many wonderful people who I know and love who like, part of how we've connected is through, you know, through our disabilities, through our our neuroqueerness, through our struggles, Mm -hmm. right. Um, and not necessarily in a, like, trauma bonding kind of way, Mm -hmm. right? Um, because I used to do a lot more of that, but, but now, um, it's more that, like, we have this shared experience and this shared understanding, so we can kind of, like, just start with a different framework and different kinds of assumptions and, and, like, maybe even, you know, not as much (laughs) assumptions. Right, um, maybe more, more, you know, in- inquisitiveness of yeah. my assumption. Um, and uh, assumption, yeah, and yeah, and connection is really at the core of what I care about. What I care about, right? So, um, so for me, the the more I work on myself, the like better able I am to connect to other people. Um, the more deeply, the more stably, um, and. You know it also of course depends on that person and how they are working on themselves right it's not a one-sided connection um, that's what makes for the connection yeah. Um, but uh, yeah I think that is the most gratifying thing is to like to know that I'm more and more myself all the time um, and that I get to share this version of me that I um, that I keep, You know sort of revising and and expanding um and um and iterating and uh and uh yeah i yeah i just i love connecting with people and i'm i'm glad that this is you know a form of that and you know like that's also why i'm here today yeah 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 and uh
0: there's
1: there's just something really um magical about more and more encountering people who um aren't what i fear them to be yeah um and sometimes still are too which is hard but um but more and more i'm i'm able to leave from a place of self instead of a place of fear yeah um and, and that is
0: very gratifying. Yeah. I think for me too, definitely, uh, you know, community has been such a huge blessing. Like, you know, finding the neuroqueer community mm-hmm. and like even people, because like there'll be people that I don't know, like I follow a bunch of accountants and people like I don't really know them personally, but it's like right. I kind of get to know them through all their posts and everything. And then I'll even think, like, oh, I wonder what so-and-so is doing. Or, oh, so-and-so posted this or that. And um, and then it's also, like, uh, you know, because there is so much understanding and there is so much that I can relate to in terms of their experiences. Like, they'll post something, you know, about, like, a conflict that they had with their family or with a relationship or at school or lack of accommodations or, you know, something like that or being misunderstood. And that's like it'll be so relatable and it'll be really reassuring because like with most people I, I just can't find that reassurance because I I know that they just don't have this the same kind of experiences or at least similar ones. Mm-hmm. Um and then when, when people do, when I see all these people that do have similar experiences, it's like there's such a, a validation um part of that that that's really helpful um and then it but it's also like reminders and stuff and like you know when the Joe just post things about like self care reminders and like remembering that it's like okay to rest um and you know uh that we're not machines cuz we right. get treated like this whole capitalist system it's like literally treating us like machines like you know having to earn our rest instead of like having to earn the ability to to produce and, and to be in a good um
1: yeah or just not having to earn not yeah, having to earn like, anything yeah getting to, to exist because we exist yeah you know? exactly um
0: yeah, yeah like mm-hmm. um so yeah all of that for sure uh and yeah so i guess you know those are all the questions i have um this has been really great, um, yeah. and yeah, it's been a pleasure having you um, on the podcast. I've I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um,
1: yes, thank you so much. I also really enjoyed this, and um, yeah, it's it's been just such a pleasure to to talk to you and get to also like you know sort of uh, connect to my neuroqueerness in a in a, more public way too, because yeah. right? I, I do a lot of that in my interpersonal mm-hmm. relationships, but you know, I don't necessarily have a lot of like public, uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for, um, vehicles, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's the right word, but whatever, to, to express these ideas and to connect with people over these ideas. So I, I appreciate that you are doing this work um, and inviting other people into it.
0: Yeah, of course it's been, you know, it's been really gratifying for me as well, um, to be able to talk to so many different people with with different uh experiences of their own and their own different flavors of neurodiversity. And uh yeah, also like to show the world like, you know, it's not just me, like there are a lot of us and, and they're so we're all so different, you know, even though we have all these um common struggles and stuff
1: and um, you can't take any one person and have them represent it all yeah <laughs> so, exactly yes. yeah yeah mm-hmm. you um, can't take any amount of people really and have them represent it all only the entirety represents it all yeah yeah
0: um yeah i <laughs> um, yeah, so uh i hope uh all you you listeners enjoyed this episode as well thank you for listening um